Yeah, that story. <sighs> yeah, I was like, oh, maybe we need to like re-record the bumper and be like, sit down for this one. This one's gonna be a doozy. Grab the Kleenex and the I tissues. Know. And... I know. Right. So typically, what we do is we have a listener question, but this is going to be a very unique episode for us because mental health is so important that we're actually not going to focus on business. We're going to literally just focus on mental health which you are obviously a pro at, right? Because you're still sitting here with us. Still, yeah, I live it on a daily, so. Still thriving, as do I and Nate. Um, it's just something that both of us struggle with as well. Um, I think what we want to really do um, on this is try and get people to recognize when they need help. Okay, I'll just give the, I think some of the major things that threw me into that world. Yeah. And talk about a little bit of the addiction side and self-medication, and then we'll just start, then we can just discuss. Okay. All right. All right. If we're ready, we'll get started. Let's do this. Yeah. Welcome to the messy back end of entrepreneurship. This is Lee Cassells, co-founder of SFQ Consulting. We all know that the back end is where most businesses fail, and I can tell you from my experience that all businesses have them, from solopreneurs to large corporations. This podcast is all about cleaning up that messy back end so you can save time, make money, and succeed. And now, here are your hosts, Sheila J. Logan and Nate Tucker. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you all so much. This episode is about the messy back end of mental health. On our expert segment, we're going to be speaking with Rob Eastman, host of the Stand and Fight podcast, about how to, as he puts it, stop being a victim of your circumstances and develop a warrior mentality and gain control of your life again. That's right, Nate. And boy, is this story incredible. You'll want to listen in. We're super honored to have Rob on our episode today to talk about this very important and timely topic about mental health. Rob is a highly sought after speaker and his message really resonates with everyone from youth to parents to high profile corporate leaders. Whether he's speaking to a small group of 10 or a crowd of thousands, Rob's personal story of bullying, mental health, religion, suicide, and addiction is incredibly moving and powerful. You'll want to grab the tissues for this one. Rob's message of overcoming extreme adversity and the high price paid to learn life's lessons motivates people to successfully change by discovering who they are, overcome fears, and make healthy life choices. These are real topics with real consequences, and we are going to have a real messy back-end discussion about how to come out of the darkness and into the light. If you or someone you know is struggling emotionally or having a hard time, you can be the difference in getting them the help they need, and you can get the help you need as well. It's important to take care of yourself when you're supporting someone through a difficult time, as this may stir up difficult emotions. If it does, please reach out for support for yourself or for your friend. Please call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank y'all so much for joining us on today's episode of The Messy Back End. 
Coming soon, watch for the messy back end of being a single mom, as well as many other messy back end topics from photography, speaking, book writing, traveling, and more. How would you like to have your very own messy back end podcast? Find out more about how you can use our team, our brand, and our online platforms to start and build your own messy back end podcast. Visit themessybackend.com slash join for details. Nate and I would love to be on your podcast or speak at your next event. Visit themessybackend.com slash speaking to send us your event details and learn more about us and our speaking topics. Thank you to our sponsor, Yes Women's Network, where you will find the connections you need to achieve your dreams. Find out more at yeswomensnetwork.com. Don't forget to subscribe, folks, to our podcast. Head on over to themessybackend.com slash subscribe so you never miss an episode. Plus, check us out on Facebook and YouTube to see full video episodes. Now into our expert, Rob Eastman, for his expert advice. Don't mess your seat, folks. Here we go. So today we have a special episode, and we're glad our listeners are here to join us. Uh, If you're finding life to be super hard, or if you just need a little help, this episode is for you. Sheila and I, as well as our expert, Rob, have been in your shoes, and we understand your pain. Life can be difficult sometimes. So welcome, Rob. We are glad to have you on the podcast today to talk about this important topic. Why don't you start out by sharing a little bit of your story with us to get started? Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I think like most Americans, uh, we all struggle with something. I think anybody across the board, but I grew up in Utah, um, felt pretty normal as a little kid. And uh, that all changed once I got to school. Um, I found that I couldn't sit still for more than five minutes, which got me in trouble and started being bullied from pretty much day one. Growing up a redhead is a easy pick for bullying. I had big ears that stuck out. I was the smallest kid in the class. And so the name calling, the being beat up at recess, all of those things just kept happening, getting in trouble in class because I couldn't sit still. So those two things were really hard as a little kid. But then the third thing that was, that was a, really difficult for me was my parents of course they wanted to help me out so they thought that getting me into the doctor would help and and I feel like I was there two or three times a week and being taken out of school you know kids notice things and they notice I was gone they'd ask where I went I'd tell them I went to the doctor to get these things done and and that would cause you know that would just separate us because the, the you know, I was isolating myself. They didn't have to do those things. I did. And really the only thing I wanted to be do as a kid was to fit in. And uh, I come from a religious background of the Mormon church, the Latter-day Saints, as they call themselves. And when you turn eight, you get baptized. And I remember that day and the lead up to it, the, the adults, my teachers, everybody telling me that my life was going to be better because of it. If I got baptized, things would change. And in my little eight-year-old mind, that meant that I would be good at math and that I'd be popular and that nobody would beat me up at recess. And so I couldn't wait to get baptized. And uh, I remember my whole family and 
was there and I have a special relationship in my family that one of my uncles is one of the 12 apostles of that church. So very special to have him in the room and, and uh, you know, I really hope I really felt like things were going to change for me and went to school on Monday and nothing changed. Still couldn't sit still, still couldn't do, you know, I didn't learn like everybody else still got made fun of and picked on at, at recess. And, uh, that was really the first time that I started waging a war with God and adults in the sense that I felt like they lied to me, that if there was a God, why would he let people do the things that they were doing to me? And, uh, so shortly after that is when I first had my first suicidal thoughts, um, moving forward through third through sixth grade, I knew that I'd get so much anxiety before I had to go to school due to the fact I knew that most of my pain came from the kids at school. So I just told myself, if anybody picks on me anymore, I'm just going to start fighting back. And uh, if they cause me physical or emotional pain, I was going to return the favor. Um, and that felt good in the moment. Um, but eventually it just got me in more trouble. And I think by the sixth grade, um, I didn't care who was being bullied. I just wanted to go protect him. So I fought a lot. And uh, that's where I met one of my best friends. I remember protecting him on the playground and uh, we were like instantly bonded and we had an amazing relationship because he was really smart and I was really scary. So he could do my homework and I could protect him at recess. So <laughs> Sounds had, like a movie, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right. We had a, an amazing relationship. His name was Danny. And uh, it was the first kid that I could really sit together with and discuss depression. And, you know, we didn't know those words back then. We just knew that we were really sad and that like asking each other, are we dumb? Are we ugly? Are we stupid? Do we, should we really die? And, and it was, uh, you know, that, that relationship that it was good to have somebody like that, but we didn't have the solutions. Um, and growing up in the eighties, we weren't taught to talk about our emotions um, it was just kind of a smile, be happy and, and get your work done. And so leading into the only thing I ever did well was athletics. And uh, I was moving. It was the summer before seventh grade. And I was I was I ran track and I played soccer pretty competitively. And I had just got done at a local high school winning the summer uh in the sprints and the 100 and 200, I, I won those for my age group. And as I was walking off, a, a man stood up and he said, if your ears weren't so big, you would have lapped them. And that was the first time that my parents, one, heard me being bullied and two, the fact that it was an adult. So, you know, I went all those years saying I'm being bullied and they're just like, you'll be fine. Just keep going to school. It, you know, it'll, you'll grow out of it. And so they're like, okay, we need to get his ears fixed. You know, that's, that's a problem because people are making fun of him, calling him names. So I went in for plastic surgery in the summer between sixth and seventh grade and had my ears pinned back. It's like a lot of redheads and people, they just don't have this fold on the side of their ears that develops when they're little. And so their ears stick out and they just make that fold and it looks normal. But I found that by that time I was already conditioned to believe that I was stupid, ugly, and worthless. And uh, so leading into junior high, more kids, bigger kids, meaner kids. Now you're at that age where you start kind of liking girls and all those fears and anxieties. Um, I didn't have the life skills I needed. And, and the only thing I thought I could do was 
be whatever you needed me to be. Um, I kind of became a Swiss army knife of moods and personality so that if I was with the kids doing drugs, I could act cool. And if I was with the skaters and if I was with the Mormon kids, I just put on this different mask and ultimately became whoever you needed me. I, I became a good actor. And the problem with that is I'd get home at the end of the day, knew I was a fraud and feel so empty inside um, that by that point, I was pretty much thinking about suicide on a daily basis. Um, ninth grade had a, a little bit of a come apart. Um, I was hanging around with some, some gangsters and I was carrying a gun at a party and uh, my girlfriend broke up with me. And that night I wanted to end my life. And uh, I played Russian roulette and ended up pulling the trigger two times. And somebody, a couple guys came and grabbed me, called the police. And when they took me home, I grew up, I didn't have grandparents. I didn't even know what that was. Um, and I remember my dad grabbing me, grabbing the gun, taking me out to the garage putting the gun on the ground and smashing it with a sledgehammer. And he got in my face and he's like, do you know why you don't have grandparents? And I was like, no. And, and he proceeded to tell me that his grandfather, his, his mother all committed suicide. And that if I were to kill myself, he wouldn't know what he would do and he might kill himself. And in that moment, I'm thinking like, I'm in pain. I love my dad. I don't want to hurt anybody in my family. I don't want anybody. To, I don't want to cause pain like people have caused me. So rather than getting the help I needed, I just got better at stuffing my emotions. Um, he was, my, my father was an amazing man. My mother is amazing, but we weren't taught how to communicate. And uh, so again, all I had was athletics. You know, I wrestled and did amazing, took second in, in district my first year ever. I was the starting point guard on the basketball team and walking through the hallways, just feeling empty. And it didn't matter unless people were filling my cup with telling me how great I was, then I was empty again. And, uh, you know, it's the attention seeking behavior, the cries for help. Um, I got into high school and, and the first time I was introduced, it's like the, the choices I had were this pain is getting so strong. I either need to kill myself. And every time I would think about that, I would think about my dad and I didn't, that would kind of defer me from there, or I've got to find something else. And uh, that was when I was introduced to, to weed and I smoked weed for the first time and all the pain went away and the people I was smoking with were so accepting and they didn't judge me and they, you know, they, they were sad like I was. And, and so I felt like that was the key that I was missing. Um, but shortly thereafter, I found that no matter how much weed I smoked, that when it wore off, the pain was still waiting for me. And if not doubled, tripled. And uh, again, rather than seeking out help, I sought more drugs and added pills and alcohol. So by the time I was out of, you know, getting towards the end of high school, I was doing some kind of drug on a daily basis. I was a high level soccer player. I had D1 scholarships, um, played on a comp, a couple of comp teams and, and had a great future in soccer, but um, ultimately associating with the people I was, my, I've got a longer story that goes into it, but that would take all day. Um, I ended up hanging out with the wrong people and uh, wrong place. And we ended up getting in a fight with a guy 
that ended up being a highway patrolman. Um, So it went from having opportunities in life to go play a sport that I loved to possibly facing jail or prison and uh, anything positive in my life at that point uh, got derailed pretty quickly. I think I was 17 or 18 years old. Um, Shortly after that, my best friend, Danny, um, ended up committing suicide and uh, that ultimately pushed me over the edge where um, by this time I'm, I'm pretty, I came, my family was pretty well to do. We owned some car dealerships and, and things. So no matter how sticky it got, I always had a way out. Um, but at that point I had no more left in me and uh, ultimately went on about a 10, 10 to 11 year hard run on drugs and alcohol that just stuffing that feeling of wanting to die, um, feeling worthless, burning up every opportunity I had, every relationship. Um, over that decade, um, I lost a lot of jobs, lost a lot of friends, and uh, got married and divorced a couple times. Um, and uh, found myself again at 31 years old, just out of a blown marriage um a daughter seven month old and uh came to the point where i knew that it was finally time that i needed to die i needed to kill myself and again that feeling of letting my dad down or or possibly putting his life in harm came into play and i remember thinking like well if i accidentally overdose then it wouldn't be the same thing and uh, so I went out and I bought a bunch of heroin. It, by this time, I'm an IV drug user. Like I'm weighing like 129 pounds. I use Coke, heroin, crystal meth, alcohol, pills on a daily basis. Um, stealing from my family, uh, pretty much just living in survival mode. And I went out and I bought a bunch of heroin. I came home and I shot up enough heroin that would kill 10 people. And I woke up the next day. And I remember thinking like, is this hell? Is this what hell feels like? Like you have, no matter what you do, you kill yourself and you just wake up like it didn't happen the next day. You're in that spiritual pain, that spiritual prison. And I felt like either God forgot about me or that I could never escape the pain. And a few days after um, I was in, I was in really bad shape. And I remember, and this is a decade of my parents bailing me out. Uh, My dad was a state Senator Um, so he's passing laws and I'm making the news for breaking them. Um, it was not, not a good deal. Um, by this time, our relationship was pretty poor. You know, he never gave up on me, but I was, I was, I was very disrespectful and, uh, pretty hurtful. And, uh, my dad came down one day and he gave me a piece of paper and he told me to read it. And, uh, he had sat up the night before and he wrote my obituary and he made me read it. And, uh, he said, I know you're going to die, but you can't do it in my basement. You need to get out. And, uh, that's where I found myself homeless downtown Salt Lake city, Utah, uh, for about a week and a half. And, uh, whatever ego I had left wouldn't allow me to do <laughs> to be homeless because I was embarrassed if people saw me, And the only time my wife had left me, um, 
I had become a harm to everybody around me just in the sense that um, you never knew what I would do. I wasn't a, a violent person, but you know, I'd pass out in the middle of the middle of the day or whatever. So the only time I could see my daughter is if my parents were there to supervise. And the only way I could get back in my parents' house is if it was to see my daughter. And uh, I'd finally gotten to the point where I knew that my daughter deserved better. And that meant me killing myself. And uh, so I set up that appointment for me to be able to see my daughter. I wanted to give her a hug. I wanted to look my mom in the eye, give her a hug and tell her I loved her. And I wanted to do the same to my dad. And as I was leaving, I snuck in and I stole a handgun and went up above the Bountiful Temple. Um, for those that don't know what that is, that's our, our religion has a bunch of temples that you can go to. And, and we, it's right on the mountain and, and there's a little bench that overlooks the temple across the street. And, uh, I knelt down and I put that gun in my mouth and I was bawling and I'm going to pull the trigger. And this vision of my daughter popped into my head and my mom, and I'd already been through multiple rehabs. And so some of the tools they gave me, like doing a pros and cons list. And it's like, my daughter will never have to know me. I will never embarrass her. Any man on the planet could come in and do a better job than I could raising her. She's going to be fine. And then my mom, she was a very, and is a very God loving woman. And uh, at this point, I, I hate God if there is one. I've walked hand in hand with the devil for many years. Um, and so I made a little spiteful deal with myself that, you know what, I'm going to say a prayer to my mom's God because he's never answered a prayer. And if he doesn't answer my prayer, by the time I open my eyes, I'm pulling this trigger. And that was on uh, August 31st, 2009. And I knelt down and I said a prayer. I said, I don't know anything about a still small voice. I'm going to need something a little bit louder than that. And if I open my eyes before I get that, uh, that answer, I'm pulling the trigger. And uh, I started opening my eyes and I started pulling the trigger and a firework display went off above the temple. And shortly after that, I heard a voice and it said, is that loud enough? And I was paralyzed and uh, started bawling and was laying face first in the dirt. And uh, at this point I was so taken back. I didn't know what I had just heard. I didn't know if it was in my head. I didn't know if somebody was standing there. I didn't know if it was God. I just knew that I couldn't deny what had just happened. And uh, it took me about, about 25 minutes before I could even move. Uh, I don't know if it was out of fear or shock, um, but uh, I drove home back down to my parents' house, I should say, Gave them the gun, told them what had happened, and I drove myself straight to the hospital. And uh, that started my recovery journey. Um, I've been clean and sober from all mood and mind-altering substances since September 1st, 2009. And uh, in that time, I went to rehab right then. And I had a different experience this time. And... And I felt like everything was going my way. I was feeling good. My wife started coming and bringing my daughter to family days. And um, I did 60 days, which is, which is pretty tough um, when, you're, when you're getting clean and sober on all those things. And in your head, you feel like you get off the drugs. You do what your family wants you to do. You do, you know, I kind of, I've been still pretty good at that people pleasing portion and, 
and I get out and my wife picks me up and everything's great. And we drive home and I get out of the car and she, she lets me know, she says, by the way, we're divorced. And, uh, that crushed me. And I'd made a deal with myself in rehab that if my, my life ever got so bad that I wanted to relapse, that I would just kill myself. So at least I could die sober. And, uh, few days after that had happened, my brother knew I was struggling. He's like, you know what, let's get out of here. Let's go to Jackson hole. And, uh, he came and picked me up. And a few minutes later, I got a phone call from a friend. He's like, what happened to your truck? And I was like, nothing happened to my truck. He's like, well, it's on a flatbed headed down fifth South. And my entire life, my parents had saved me, whether it had been emotionally, spiritually, or financially, and uh, when my dad said he was done before, he meant it. And I didn't know, but 90 days after not paying your bills, the bank likes to come and take things. So as soon as I left town, they came and boarded up, locked up my home, uh, took my cars. I had a, a nice home in North Salt Lake, um, a concrete company. They came and took everything. So here I am at like two months sober and my wife just left and uh, the bank took everything. And as I'm sitting there in my head, I'm so fearful because I needed the beautiful wife to make myself feel better. I needed the cool trucks and cars to make myself look cool. And I needed my dad there to be able to pay for all of that because I couldn't. And uh, at nine months, got a phone call. My mom wanted me to go check on my dad, went in his room and he wasn't there. And uh, we start driving around looking for him. He was a diabetic and, uh, we got a call that they had delivered him to, he had a diabetic low and they delivered him to MCI in Murray. And uh, he ended up passing away on the side of the road that day. And uh, here I am at nine months sober thinking, okay, I lost my wife. I lost everything. I lost my dad, you know, perfect. Plenty of reasons to relapse, plenty of reasons to kill myself. And I was so mad in spiteful at that time i'm like if there's a heaven my dad's definitely there and if he's there he's probably running the show anyways so i gave the middle finger to god and i just started praying to my dad and uh that ultimately started me on my spiritual journey growing up being told that, that there's somebody out there something out there that'll take care of you and all this crap and faith this and faith that i didn't understand that i was a man that i needed proof and uh, my dad had given me proof of love And uh, I prayed to him every day, probably 10 or 15 times, some days 50 times. And uh, one day it dawned on me, like, if there is something out there and they love me even a quarter of what my dad does, then I'm a loved individual. Sorry. <laughs> and that really started me on a different journey and path. I hated church. I hated any religious people's um, service was not even getting close to happening. <laughs> like I needed to be paid for my time, but um, I had this new daughter. I had all this trauma and uh, what really fueled me through was, was knowing that I only had nine months sober with my dad and that in hopes that if I did what I was supposed to on this planet, that I would one day get to see him again. And uh, 
And I've tried and lived my life every day since then, as if he were sitting in the room, as if my daughter was sitting on my lap. Would I be hanging out with these people? Would I be talking that way? Um, and uh, I didn't have the money to get a therapist after that. So I ended up getting a Pell Grant from the government. I went back and I studied psychology. Um, I started using fitness to train other recovering addicts. And as I learned more psychology, I felt like the two needed to be intertwined and uh, started utilizing the things I learned in the psychology room on, on my clients with fitness and uh, ultimately came up with an idea to create a place called Eastman Fitness and Wellness. And um, I went on a journey of became an ultra marathoner 13 times, uh, started cage fighting at 35 years old. Um, all these things, anything I could do to face my fears and to make sure that I took every demon or fear I ever had in my life and brought it into the light so that I didn't have to live in fear and shame anymore. And uh, here we are 11 years later, um, never in a million years would I have ever thought that one, the school district would let me work with kids, but to be, I'm a head coach, have been for eight years. Um, I work with girls volleyball, boys wrestling. I'm the head coach at a junior high and a high school. Um, I started a nonprofit that works with families in crisis with mental health, addiction, and bullying. Um, I speak, I spoke to over 10,000 students and teachers last year. Um, I have a farm. We use my animals to, to help kids that are struggling connecting with people to find that nonverbal communication and love and taking care of something and, and finding self-love in that. And have found that all of those things I feared when I was trying to be a tough guy, the vulnerability, the showing your weaknesses, you know, we, we were raised that that wasn't manly and come to find out that's the most manly thing we can do. And to think that, you know, one day I remember in recovery, just thinking, if I can just get a job and make $40,000 a year, I'm, I'm going to be happy. If I can just keep a job and make that, my life will, I'll be perfect. And now to, to be able to have my own schedule, to be an entrepreneur, to own my own business, to be a, a speaker on leadership and motivation and, and a youth mentor and these things on solely sharing my fails and to make six figures and to have, you know, I've, I've opened and started three successful companies and working on a fourth. And it's just unbelievable what can happen when you show your true self and you surround yourself with people that are going to lift you up and not use those things against you. Um, to be able to sit with my daughter and share all my fails and her look at me with so much happiness and pride. Priceless. It's absolutely insane. The love uh, that comes from these things. So I'm just, there's days I just have to like pinch myself or shoot myself with a BB gun or something to make sure this thing is real. Um, I'm just, beyond blessed and and honored to be in the position that I am and and respected by you know it's I went back and made immense 
and that included the police officers. And now most of them are chiefs of police. So I have a great relationship with, with my whole county's police and sheriff departments. And we work together on helping them understand how to deal with mental health calls, um, the signs of those so that you can, you can come in with compassion and not a loaded gun. Um, and it's just been an insane journey. And uh, I look forward to Mondays. You know, I never thought that would happen. You know, the weekends are hard for me because it's not, I'm not hanging out with my friends, which are my clients and people I get to speak with in schools and students. So to be able to do that is, is amazing. Started a podcast um, that's centered around mental health and uh, had great success with that. And I just can't, the vulnerability and, and, and uh, honesty about who and what you are will change your life forever. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were saying that when you were a child, you were putting on different masks everywhere you went and with the different people that you spent time with. Actually, you know, I remember doing that myself. Like there were certain people or groups that I would be with where I would actually feel like I needed to act differently. And it wasn't until I was almost 40 that I realized I just need to be myself, not what everybody else wants me to be because I realized that I didn't even know who I was anymore because I was everybody else. I wasn't me and relearning to trust myself and to be myself and to be authentic was a huge challenge. And I think as entrepreneurs, I know we, we want to make this more about mental health, but especially as entrepreneurs, I've met so many speakers where I see one person up on the stage, I see a different person on social media and I meet a different person behind the stage. And I'm always surprised that they can be different people in different places. But I think what you just said, where they're trying to be what other people need by the time I see them backstage, they're back to themselves and they don't know who they are and they're angry. And so finding out who you are and understanding what you need, not what everybody else is telling you you need, but what you specifically need, I think is, is a huge key to mental health and not being alone is, is important too. Um, I find that whenever I'm struggling the most, if I can go out and mentor someone or spend time with someone, you know, Nate and I have, have texted each other before and said, Hey, you know, can you talk? I need to talk to somebody or, you know, I'll reach out and say, Hey, how's your day? Or he'll do the same for me. And we just become good friends that way where we, we kind of know when each other maybe needs a little bit of a boost. And I know actually Nate is really good at doing this for other people too, is, and people tell him all the time, like, Nate, you're the happiest person I know. And I know that that's, that's a struggle for him too, on a regular basis. It's something that we, I think we all deal with. Yeah. I think that, that especially being in the positions that it sounds like you guys are and that I'm in that where we help people, we get forgot about, we, people think we don't have bad days. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're the happiest all the time. So we don't want to check in on them. You know, we don't want to be a burden. It's like, yo, I'm drowning over here. Throw me a freaking life raft. <laughs> We're all, we all have bad days. I know so. when Nate's posting about tacos, it's time to give him a holler. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, you're eating too many tacos. What's going on? <laughs> that, that's when you know I'm, I'm struggling is if I'm posting taco memes left and right. That's You've cracked my code, Sheila. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tell. I'm sorry. It is. <laughs> oh, okay. That's, that's good to know. No, uh, Rob, you, you shared such a wonderful story. Um, and, you know, a lot of people probably listening a lot of times who haven't struggled with mental health probably go oh wow he's had such a tragic story that's inspirational or whatever um but i think those of us who 
can relate in a lot of ways to what you you were talking about, where we've had these thoughts of, you know, okay, well, there's that one person in our life that we need to keep going for. And, you know, and, and we try to fight and then you lose that one person. And then you go, well, why do I need to keep going? And, and why is this? Uh, and sometimes it takes quite literally a, a big boom, a big explosion to get our, you know, our life back in track and back on focus. Um, other times it is kind of, you know, and I, I'm like you, Rob, I'm like a still small voice. That's, that's not going to work for me. You know, sometimes I need to be smacked upside the head to be told yeah. what to do, you know, type of thing. That's my stubbornness coming out. What I was getting at is I, I love that you shared these stories and not only being vulnerable, like you said you were, um, but really I think it's important because, and the whole reason behind us doing this podcast is to let entrepreneurs know that we all struggle. You know, the name of the show is the messy back end, is to show that we all have these messy back ends in business. Well, with you and your story, you've illustrated that we all have messy back ends in life too. Yeah. No matter how well we seem put together or, you know, or what opportunities we've had in life, we all still have messes. So I really appreciate you sharing you know, your messes and your, not only your messes and how you've cleaned them up, but the messes that you weren't able to clean up where you were failing. And it's like, I failed here. I failed here. I failed here, but that doesn't make you a failure. That makes you strong for learning from your failures. And that's something I think we can all learn from. So thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. I speak, when I speak to the youth, it's one of their biggest deals is they feel that if they fail, they're a failure. And that's mm-hmm. just like, if I knew what I know now, I would have failed a lot more often <laughs> because <laughs> it hopefully a little more educated move forward. I think we spend so much time fearing the decision that we, we wait too long or we, we do, we make the decision based on what other people we think they want. And especially in business, if you're concerned about everybody else, you're going to have a bad go at it. You need to move forward with whatever you feel is right and, and roll with the punches as it comes. But the indecisiveness, especially in business and in life, uh, can really make things a lot harder. Definitely. One of, the, one of the quotes that we talk about often is that successful people make quick decisions and smart decisions. And then the change is slow. I know, I remember the day that I hit rock bottom as well. The day that I hit rock bottom is the day that I decided I had to make change and I was able to do it, but it took years. It didn't happen overnight. It took this, you know, huge long amount of time. It was what I always tell my children. We've, we've recently gone through a major change in our family. And I'm always telling my children and my husband's children, whatever you feel is okay. Whatever you're feeling is right now is okay. I, my husband likes to tease me because I say, feel your feelings. <laughs> you, everybody's got to feel their feelings and we need to let them feel their feelings, you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, support them in whatever, you know, they need. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because there's too many par- people think that parenting is protection for a small portion, maybe one age one to three, but after that it's preparation and if you're not preparing your children and helping them understand those emotions, 
they're going to develop the bad coping skills. They're going to need you. They're going to need substance. They're going to throw tantrums. They're going to do whatever it is. I learned things at 31 that I should have learned at 13. And that <laughs> one sucked. Two was embarrassing. And then my maturity, my emotional maturity was stunt when I started using all this other stuff to cope. So yeah, I'm, I'm fully agree with the, you got to feel it to heal it. You know, it's easier to, to make things feel better. You know, if our kids sad, you know, I hate seeing my daughter cry, but I also hate the idea of her being coddled and not understanding what she's feeling down the road and me visiting her in rehab. Like, mm -hmm. I don't care. She can feel horrible right now because I know she's safe and that I can walk her through it. Yeah. And the more we do that, the, the more con like true confidence she's, she's, she's farther along at 11 than I was at 30. And I hate to say that, but it's good for her. Terrible for me, but. But good on you um, though. I mean, you know, granted you had a hard time with your relationship with her in the beginning, but it's quite possible that the struggles that she saw you go through made her stronger. And, you know, we can't look back and change the past, but we can look back and see is what did we do that made things right? And how are they doing now? I mean, my, my children struggle. All of my children have had super difficult times. Um, different ones have had suicidal thoughts. Different ones have had, um, you know, very difficult situations and overcoming sadness, dealing with anxiety, dealing with, um, you know, difficult things. And I can't look back and blame myself for those things. What I can do is support them in where they are right now. But I started out as the biggest helicopter mom in the world. I thought I had to save my children. Um, my parents never saved me from anything, but for whatever reason, I always thought I had to protect and save my children. But I learned very early that I couldn't do that. And I think that um, with our friends right now, we can't protect them. We can't save them. We just like we can't save our children, but we can be a hand to hold, someone to hug, the physical touch depending on what your love language is, can be tremendous. Love languages is huge too, because different people love different ways and they receive love in different ways. And we yeah. need to be respectful of that too. Wow, great story and amazing success in overcoming it. Um, congratulations on becoming the success that you are right now. Good on you for um, doing such a good job and in, in becoming a leader and helping other people through that. Yeah, I have a a wall painted in my gym and it says there's a different devil at every level oh my god so that's the truth as, as i level up god's like here you go you know it's true. i don't i don't struggle at all anymore with substance i don't it doesn't even cross my mind and once i understood like thought of myself like a computer if i thought about suicide i needed to not like think about killing myself but think that's a red flag what just happened so I would pause and I would breathe and I'd be like, did I just argue with somebody? Did I just feel a little anxious? Did I, and, and I started understanding all the trigger points. So I haven't thought about killing myself for a long time. And it's like, if your computer gets an error, you don't just throw it out your window and go buy a new one. You get the bugs out and you move <laughs> along. And that's just how our wiring, I went from happy to suicidal. There was no in between. And once I understood that, then I started putting the stepping stones and now I have, I can think, think, play the tape to the end. But as a kid in the feeling, cause there is a feeling of, of fear or anxiety and, and that is real, but what's fueling that is not real. It's usually fear of the unknown, fear of something that might happen. And we spend so much time in that, in that crazy place that we never 
build those those skills that we could use to combat that. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for sharing your story with our listeners. Nate and I have, we were in an event in 2017 with one of my friends who took his life the next year. Uh, thank you so much for telling us your story and um, helping us all through these really difficult times. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rob. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're committed to improving crisis services and advancing suicide prevention by empowering individuals, advancing professional best practices, and building awareness. If you or someone you know needs help, please call 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K, 1-800-273-8255. help. Well, folks, that's all for today's episode of The Messy Backend. It's Nate and Sheila signing off until next time. Thank you to our advertiser, PodServe FM. They will help you get your podcast hosted and published quickly and easily. Visit them at podserve.fm forward slash messy to find out more. And thank you to our advertiser, Thrivecart. They're the number one shopping cart software that grows your income from existing traffic with high converting checkout pages, upsells, and affiliate campaigns. Watch the video on how simple this cart solution is at themessybackend.com slash cart. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform by going to themessybackend.com forward slash subscribe and check us out on our YouTube channel for full episodes. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of The Messy Backend. I'm Wendy Y. Bailey, known as your Income Acceleration Mentor, and I'm the founder and dean at More Coaching Client Sales and Marketing Academy. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like my backend is getting cleaner with every episode. I can tell you from my own experience that processing, looking at the messy backend situation when it happens helps you to grow and learn and be that much better as an entrepreneur. Join us again next week as experts share more customized business advice and tips about all the messy stuff that goes into the back end of entrepreneurship. Remember, you're not alone. Every business has a messy back end that needs a little attention. Nate, are you so proud? I did not ball through the whole thing. I, I am proud of you. That's that's something we could be talking about Taco Bell and she starts crying sometimes. So. How did I find out about you? Oh, were you on Entrepreneur's Top 20 podcasts? Mm-hmm. I was, yeah. Yeah, you know, I was like, what the heck? Throw it to the wind. Worst <laughs> thing that can happen is they just don't reply. But I'll tell you what, every one of you replied and said, I'd love to come on your podcast. And I was like, oh. That's, that's what I say about dating. You know? Hold on a second. I'm going to grab a drink real quick. You bet. No problem. He's like fitness guy of America, too. Super fit. I know. He just ran. <laughs> He's like, let me grab it really quick. He sprints into the other room. We just don't allow swear words, which Nate is very bummed about. <laughs> no swearing, right. damn it. A, there's right. different lists on people's world of what a swear word is. I have a few uh, Australian clients, and their list is very different than most Americans <laughs> on what's considered swear words. Like their yeah. terms of endearment are like what would get you punched in the face here in America. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, my friends in Australia think that my name is a dirty word, so...
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the name's Sheila. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> okay. Still okay. recording. Okay. Should I should I burp first? Is yes, that... please. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. Just every time you see me burp, you're adding it to that file. Like you just kind of it do. <laughs> uh, our bloopers are now called bloops. Bloops. <laughs> Stay tuned for the bloops. Stay tuned for the bloops. I like it. That's that's hip and fresh. <laughs> We're gonna make the Urban Dictionary if we try hard enough. Bloops. On our expert segment, we're going to speaking. Ugh.